Nothing happens. Nobody comes. Nobody goes. It's awful. So wrote the Irish playwright Samuel Beckett in his play Waiting for Godot. The two characters spend the entire play waiting expectantly for the arrival of Godot. They kill the time by discussing life, death, religion, suicide. But nothing happens. Nothing changes. Nobody comes. I don't want to spoil the ending for you, but Godot never arrives. That may explain why uh, on the fringe this year there is a production of Waiting for Godot, but also another production called Still Waiting for Godot. Beckett was underscoring what he saw as the pointlessness of life. Many writers, philosophers, commentators before and since have taken up the same theme. What's the point of living? The sun rises, it sets. We are born, we live, we die. And many people will point to Christians today and say, this Jesus you're waiting for, he's not coming back. This Jesus you say is coming, he's not. You're waiting in vain. Nobody comes. And the implication is just as clear. If he was wrong when he said he was coming back, then he was wrong when he claimed to be God's son. Writing roughly 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul addressed exactly this question. Where is this coming he spoke of? What is Jesus waiting for? Peter's answer, as we will see, not only undermines the question, but turns it back on the questioner. If you're not a Christian tonight, then the question for you is a short one. The question Peter poses is not, why is God waiting? But what are you waiting for? So let's turn in our Bibles then to uh, the second letter written by Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. You'll find this on page 1,223 of the uh, church Bibles. Grab one from a pew in front of you. So 2 Peter chapter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But... They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, 
not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter wrote this uh, near the end of his life, probably around 68 AD, the year in which he was martyred. He had been a fisherman by trade. He then spent three years as a disciple following Jesus. And when we meet him in the gospel, again and again we see Peter's all-too-human failings. It's Peter who walks on water and then sinks when his nerve and his faith fail him. It's Peter who proclaims, you are the Christ, only then to reject Jesus' teaching that he must die and be raised to life again. And it's Peter who declares, even if all fall away, I will not, before doing exactly that, publicly disowning him as soon as he is put to the test. Warren Wearsby in his book, Be Aware, Be Alert, describes Peter as the courageous but careless Christian. And yet, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, it is Peter, the Galilean fisherman, who addresses the crowd in Jerusalem. It is Peter who declares in Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And how does Peter know this? As he says in 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So when Peter, follower of Jesus, founder of of his church, now writes to his fellow believers, they know they can take it as first hand. So let's look then at the question which is posed to Peter and to his response. And what we're going to see first is that it's the wrong question, and second, the right answer. First then, the wrong question. Why is God waiting? Well, let's look again at verses 3 and 4. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. When Peter speaks of the last days, he's not looking ahead to the end of the world. He's talking of the period uh, between Christ's first coming and his return. In fact, the same period that we're in now. The Old Testament prophets had taught uh, that there would be a Messiah, a Savior, and his coming would usher in those last days. Those last days would endure until the final judgment. When Peter addressed the crowd in Jerusalem, he used the same image, quoting the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. But in these days, in those days, Peter's and ours, Peter says, scoffers will come. Why has Jesus not returned? What is he waiting for? Verse 4, ever since our fathers died, everything goes on since it has, since the beginning of creation. Nothing happens. Nobody comes. Nothing changes. 
It's a popular argument today, isn't it? Richard Dawkins and many others argue that science has disproved God. There is no need of a creator. The earth just is. The scientific approach allows us to marvel at nature, to be amazed at its complexity, its variety, without needing a creator to explain its existence. One biologist puts it this way, we are the product of a mindless and purposeless natural process which did not have us in mind. Peter's first answer to the scoffers is this, things have not always gone on as they always have. There was a beginning, and in the beginning, God created Verse 5, but they deliberately forget long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Listen, says Peter, you don't think Jesus is going to return? You don't think God will intervene at the end of time? Well, he was there at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. The regular progression from day to day only points us to our marvelous Creator. It doesn't point us to our pointlessness. John Lennox, in his book, God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God, gives us this example. Take a Ford motor car. It's conceivable someone seeing one for the first time and who knew nothing about modern engineering might imagine there is a god, Mr. Ford, inside the engine making it go. If he were subsequently to study engineering and take the engine to pieces, he would discover that there is no Mr. Ford inside it. Neither would it take much intelligence for him to see that he did not need to introduce Mr. Ford as an explanation for it working. So far, so good. But if he then decided that his understanding of the principles of how the engine works make it impossible to believe in the existence of a Mr. Ford, this would be patently false. Science can teach us the awesome complexity of life, the universe, and everything, but it cannot give us the answer. In the words of the zoologist and Nobel laureate Peter Medawar, it can't answer the childlike questions. How did everything begin? What are we here for? What's the point of living? And what was it that God created? It was good. It was very good. Paul, writing to the Romans, says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what is being made, so that men are without excuse. And Peter says the same. You don't believe that God keeps his word Well, look around you. Look what his word has made. But that very good world did not stay good. Sin entered in. And that brings Peter to his second response. You think each day passes like the last? You think that God is not going to intervene to stop us following our evil desires? Well, he's done it before. Look at verse 6. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Peter points us to the times of Noah when God intervened in power to wash away a sinful world, saving one man, Noah, and his family. We all sin, 
we all fall short of the glory of God. It's not a popular word now, sin. We prefer to talk about moral compass. We may say there's no such thing as absolute truth, except, of course, if you say that, then you believe in at least one absolute truth. We prefer to weigh ourselves in the balance, compare ourselves against other people. We say, I'm not that bad. I'm living a decent life. I'm not stealing. I'm not killing. I'm not sleeping around. But God is holy. God is pure. He is perfect. He is just. We may think little of our little white lies, our private lusts, our gossiping, our envy, our jealousy, our hypocrisy, our worship of our possessions, our careers, our families. But each alone is enough to separate us from God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. We cannot stand before the throne of God. We cannot stand before his spotless, sinless throne. We are separated from him forever by each individual act of sin, each rebellion against him. Peter reminds the scoffers, God looked on the earth, he saw our wickedness, our violence, our corruption, and he swept it all away. You're wrong, says Peter. The world has not always gone on as it has. God has already intervened and, verse 7, he's going to do it again. For anyone, for all of us reading these verses, they're sobering and shocking. Our sin has separated us from God. We are cut off from his purity. The day of reckoning will come and there is nothing we can do to make ourselves good enough. How easily we think Peter is sending a warning to other people. He's not. The warning is to all of us. We are all scoffers. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Friends, we are readily grieved by the state of our nation. We look at a country seemingly hell-bent on being hell-bent. I don't need to spell out the many social issues where we are cut to the quick and seek the Lord's aid in prayer, as we should. But are we cut to the quick by our own sin? Does it grieve us the way it grieves our Father? Do we seek forgiveness out of habit or in humility? If you're not a Christian, you may be saying, I know I'm not perfect, but am I going to be judged? Yes, Peter says, we are all going to be judged. Look around and see God's creation. It had a beginning and it will have an end. God has intervened in power before and he has promised he is going to do it again. Well, if that were an end to what Peter had to say, then what a depressing picture it would paint. But gloriously, it is not. So we turn from the wrong question to the right answer. Look again at verses 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, 
and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord is waiting for us. Peter Lewis writes, The delay of Christ's second coming to salvation is not, after all, the failure of God's plan, but rather the condition of its success. He is waiting because he wants none of us to perish. Probably the best known verse in the Bible is John 3:16, the word spoken by Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loved us, loves us so much that he gives us his son. Jesus died to take the punishment that was due to me, due to us. He wants none of us to perish. And how do we accept that gift of eternal life? Peter tells us we repent. Graham Daniels told us this morning of the need to say sorry. For my children, saying sorry usually means I'm sorry I was caught. And it's true, true enough, that sorry seems to be the hardest word. In 2007, the then Defence Secretary, Des Brown, told the Commons, you really couldn't make this up, I have expressed a degree of regret that can be equated with an apology. <laughs> Marvellous, well done. But the Lord calls on us to repent, to turn away from sin and turn to him. Repentance is a conscious decision, a changing of life, a turning around. So why turn to Jesus? Peter has already told us that he was an eyewitness of the power of Jesus Christ. If Jesus led a moral life and then left us his collected wisdom to analyze, to admire, to aspire to, then his death was just a good life ended. But Peter was an eyewitness to so much more. As he told the crowd in Jerusalem, God raised him from the dead. Why else would Peter leave his fishing again and spend the rest of his life spreading the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection? Would he really have done that if he knew that it was a lie? No. Peter was an eyewitness to the death and resurrection. In death, Jesus took the punishment for all that I have done wrong. And in resurrection, he offers eternal life if we will turn to him. He offers eternal life not because of the good I have done, not in spite of the bad we have done, but because of what Christ has done. We are offered God's riches at Christ's expense. God shows us his mercy by not giving us the punishment we deserve and shows us his grace by giving us the reward we don't deserve. And, Peter says, glorious news, he is waiting for you. Verse 9, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance.
if you have not done that, if you have not done that, let me plead with you to do it now. Jesus has paid the price for our sins. He is offering eternal life, starting now and continuing with him in heaven. God is waiting for you. What are you waiting for? So as we conclude, let's go back to where we started. Peter has demonstrated that the question is wrong, and he has given us the right answer. Jesus is patiently waiting for us to come to repentance. And if you're a Christian tonight, then the next question is this. Are we waiting well? Verse 1, Peter calls us to wholesome thinking. Are we answering that call? Are we spending time studying his word? Are we devoting ourselves in prayer? Are we discerning about what else we read, we watch, we hear? And second, is this not a call to evangelize? God may be patient, but how will his people repent unless we tell them the good news? You may know the American uh, magicians, Penn and Teller, Penn Gillette is renowned not only for his uh, magic, but also for his atheism. After one of his shows, a fan gave him a Gideon's Bible. On his blog, Penn said that he respected that. And he went on, If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's really not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward... He continued, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there comes a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Now this is an atheist speaking. And if you are not a a Christian tonight, then the question is a short one. Why are you waiting? Perhaps you have heard God's word many times before. Perhaps this is the first time. Perhaps you will hear it many times over. Perhaps this is the last time. If you have not yet turned to Jesus, then know this. He will not wait forever. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. God created. Sin polluted. God is waiting for us to turn back to him. He will not wait forever. He will keep his promise to return. Dick Lucas and Christopher Green put it like this. Eternal life is a free gift. Eternal life is a free option for all. But perishing is the option that will be taken up by many. Are you waiting well? Or are you just waiting? Let's pray together. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, 
we know we have done so much in rebellion against you. But you loved us so much that you sent your Son, who took the punishment due to us, and to offer us eternal life. Thank you, Lord, that you are patient with us. Father, we pray that you will help all those who have never turned to you to do that now and to accept the grace that you offer. And help us all, Lord, who have claimed your promise to wait faithfully for Christ's coming again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.